This week, as we continue our series, Facing Jerusalem, where we're looking in Luke's gospel at how Jesus began his ministry in the beautiful scenery of rural Galilee, and then at some point he turned his face to go to Jerusalem, even knowing that in Jerusalem there would be conflict and struggle and danger. Uh, We're going along with him in that journey. And we come to a time in the journey where Jesus is facing grief. He's dealing with significant grief and we're asking ourselves, how should we journey through those seasons in life when we too are facing grief? Now there are significantly different types of grief and uh, we all haven't experienced the same types of grief, but if you live in the West Knoxville community, there's a particular type of grief that almost all of us have experienced and that is the grief of having to travel to or from downtown at five o'clock on Friday. Uh, We have almost all experienced that. And I want you to know, whenever I am in that situation, I use my GPS and I am very intentional about I'm going to find the best way. I'm going to find, is the best way I-40? Is it Kingston Pike? Is it Middlebrook Pike? Is it Paper Mill? Is it Sutherland? Is it going up Pellissippi and down Alcoa Highway? What is the best way we're going to find it? And if I am, if I-40 is the best way, I can tell you there are three distinct pinch points between here and downtown on I-40, and all of those have a correct lane to be in. There is one lane that consistently moves faster than the others. I have done extensive research on it, and I'd be happy to tell you exactly where that lane is at each of the pinch points. Uh, What I'm trying to do is get an uncomfortable experience over as quick as possible. And that actually works pretty well when your grief is traffic-related. But when you have actual grief, actual significant grief, I want you to know that does not work well. Trying to get through it as quickly as possible is actually counterproductive. They've done studies on people journeying through difficult times, and what they find is that people who try to minimize or or try to find ways to numb themselves from difficult, painful feelings, they often get stuck in their grief, and they never fully journey through grief because they're trying so hard to run from it. And when it comes to grief, you can truly run, but you cannot hide. Uh, Until you face it, it will continue to stay with you and haunt you. But if you face it, it can turn from a curse into a blessing. And this is why we need God to guide us in God's ways when we journey through grief as much as any time in our life. Because if we do it on our own by our own ways, Uh, we might walk in a way that will never lead us out of the curse into the blessing. So one of the things we encourage here at Concord United Methodist is we encourage you to be reading your Bible and praying every day so that we can learn God's ways. You can find a daily Bible reading plan at concordunited.org slash Bible or at our information center in the lobby. If you go on the website, concordunited.org slash Bible, you can also find there uh, a daily devotional uh, that will take you deeper into the scripture for the day and give you a focus for your prayer time. You can find that in email or podcast form. And I would encourage you, please be reading your Bible. Please be praying every day. We're going to need it if we're going to journey through this life on God's ways that lead us where we want to go rather than our own ways, which sometimes can lead us to dead ends. Now, there's something before we talk more about grief that you need to know about it. There are some things in this world that 
just go together, right? Uh, for instance, we, um, you know, uh, April showers bring May flowers. We can't have beautiful gardens unless we have the rain and the storms. That's, that's how life is. And, and that's one example of, of, of many things, right? Um, I was recently at a baseball game. And there was a, a seemingly a happy couple sitting behind us. They were a, a few years older uh, than I. And uh, the, I remember the game was very, everything was very pleasant. And then during the middle of the game, uh, the husband got up and he went to get himself something to eat. And he came back and he sat beside this woman who I assume was his wife. And, and I hope she still is. Uh, <laughs> but at that point, she said something to him that, that possibly could have threatened their marriage. She looked at his choice of hot dog, and she said, you know, the doctor says you shouldn't eat like that. What she failed to know in that moment was that God created hot dogs to go with baseball. That in God's wisdom, and somehow this got left out of the book of Genesis. I actually think it was probably originally in there, but they just lost that part of the papyrus scroll. Um, you know, God said, you know, when thou goest to a baseball game, thou shalt eat a hot dog. Um, you know, some things, they, they just go together. Well, it's like that with grief. And I want you to know this. Grief and love go together. Grief, in fact, is a sign of love. Neither grief nor love can exist without the other. The only reason we feel grief is because we have love. You only grieve the things you love. If we were not able to love, we would never have grief. We would just have disappointment. When I go to a restaurant and my food isn't cooked very well, and it's not as delicious as I hoped it would be, I don't feel grief. I feel disappointment. But when there's someone I loved, something I loved, a dream I loved, and it's lost, then, then I feel grief. Uh, I don't know how many of you are a part of our Wednesday nights here, our community care night, but we have a meal, we have worship, we have small groups. It's one of the best nights of the week, and I would encourage you to, to join us. On, on that e those evenings, recently, we went through a message series called Good Grief, and we called it Good Grief because grief is good, because grief shows you loved, and love is a gift from God. And we can walk through it again in a way that ultimately leads to blessing. Or we can walk through it in a way that just leaves us with a curse. And so we want to see Jesus' way of walking through it so we can walk through it in that way that leads to a blessing. Today we're looking towards the end of Jesus' life. He's journeyed to Jerusalem and he's now actually made it to Jerusalem. He's been uh, teaching and preaching in Jerusalem. He just had the Last Supper with his disciples. And then he goes to the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, to pray. And he knows what he's been trying to tell everybody else, but nobody else knows because nobody else really understands or believes him, uh, that the next 24 hours will be the, the most painful and difficult of his life, physically, spiritually, emotionally. Uh, he'll be arrested. He'll be unfairly tried. He'll be tortured. He'll be executed. He'll be publicly humiliated. This is all coming. He knows it's all coming. And so he goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. Here's what happens. We're picking up with Luke 22, verse 39. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. 
In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. We see Jesus right now experiencing a particular type of grief. Uh, He's experiencing what we might call anticipatory grief. It hasn't all happened yet, but he knows it's coming. There, There are many types of grief. And I want you to know today, when we talk about grief, we might, I might say things, and you might think, Pastor, you don't know me. You don't know my grief. You don't know what it's like to walk through what I'm walking through, what I've had to deal with. You don't know what it's like to lose the things that I've lost. You're right. You're right. I don't. I don't know exactly what it's like to be in your shoes. What I want you to keep in mind today during our conversation is Jesus does. And Jesus has walked there. And Jesus is walking with you right now. In this moment, he's experiencing anticipatory grief. And I've sat with people as they've heard the words pancreatic cancer. And I've sat with people as they've heard the letters ALS. And I remember talking to one of my friends. He was so excited. He and his wife were going to the doctor there ready for the birth of their first child. Uh, And this was going to be the day uh, when they first got to hear the heartbeat. And there was a heartbeat, uh, but there were other things that didn't look well. uh, And they called for more tests. uh, And a few days later, it it was official. uh, The pregnancy wasn't viable. uh, And not only that, but the mother's health uh, was significantly uh, in danger. And her future ability to have children was going to be questionable. And they had scheduled a procedure at the hospital. And I remember sitting with them, just this anticipatory grief. Right now, there's a heartbeat inside of her. 48 hours from now, there there won't be. Right now, we have dreams for our family and for her health. And we don't know if those will come true or not. And I remember him just looking at me and saying, there is nothing good about this. There's no silver lining. There's nothing Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've been there. And I want you to know when you're there that Jesus has been there. Do you you remember what it tells us about him? I also want you to know what, what it means when God walks with us through that. It says he was so disturbed that he prayed and his sweat became like drops of blood. Even the Son of God who knew this was what he had to do to save the world was struggling to see any good in it in, in that moment. He was calling upon his father. And it says that the angels came to him. That his father was so touched that his father sent angels to attend to him. And it says the angels strengthened him. But it doesn't say that all of a sudden he was completely at peace and ease with the situation. And no longer worried about it. And knew that no matter what, he'd easily walk through what was before him. No, he was still in anguish. But God was with him. Just because you're in anguish doesn't mean the angels aren't with you doesn't mean God isn't there right now strengthening you so let's let's look at what Jesus did in this moment that gave him the path to walk the path that opened the path to eternal life for all of us that gave him the strength for that in his grief Jesus did two things he turned to God and his go-to guys 
It says that he went to the garden to pray, and he took his disciples with him. Now, in other Gospels, uh, we're provided a little more detail about what happens there. Here, we're just told they fall asleep. In some of the other accounts, we're told they fall asleep multiple times, and he wakes them up, and he says, I need you here with me, and they fall asleep. They didn't always know what to do, and when they did know what to do, they weren't always able to do it, but he took them. He knew he needed them. He knew he needed God and his go-to guys. When we walk through grief, we need God and we need our go-to guys or our go-to gals. We, we need them there with us. That's an important part. And there will be moments when grief causes us to want to turn away from God because we're angry with God or we don't even know what to say or we're so disturbed uh, that we don't even know how to, to pray anymore. And there will be moments when grief makes us want to turn away from one another, either because I don't want you to see me like this. I don't want you to see me struggle like this. Or because I don't know what to say to you in this situation. I see your pain and I don't have any words that can make it better and I don't know what to do. We will have those experiences of wanting to turn away from each other, wanting to turn away from God in seasons of grief. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't take that easy way out. It doesn't lead to blessing. It leads to curse when when we do that. I want to tell you about a great lady in, in my life. Her name's Miss Margie. Uh, when I went to college at the uh, greatest undergraduate institution in the history of history, Emory and Henry College, a proud United Methodist Holston Conference College, uh, there for several years I lived in a house uh, with four other guys. And uh, of all of us within that house and within that friend group, uh, Margie uh, was Trevor's mother, and she was the mother who lived the closest to us of all the moms. And she took it upon herself to be uh, a second mom to all of us. We didn't ask her to. She decided we needed it, and we didn't have a choice. In essence, she was our dorm mother. By the way, I don't know if anybody here works in higher education. I have no training in higher education. But I would make the humble assertion, if you want to improve behavior at male dorms, bring back dorm mothers. Those women knew something about life those young men needed to know. Right? So just a, just a small suggestion. Uh, but that's who she was for us. And she was all the time coming down with her husband, Wilbur, and they'd take us out and they'd, they'd feed us. And she's asking about us and she's joking with us. She's inviting us to, to her house. She's all in our business. I mean, we knew before you take a girl home to mama, you take her to Miss Margie, right? And after you take her to Miss Margie, uh, Miss Margie will say one of two things. She might say, oh, honey. I'm sure she's a nice girl. And then after that, there are several other adjectives that she might use, and I won't list those right now to protect the innocent. But that meant you don't take her home to mama, and this might not need to last that long. Or she would say, oh, baby, you marry her before she's realized what she's gotten into. Right? <laughs> That means take her home. That's the kind of woman Miss, Miss Margie was. I will always be, be thankful for her. Well, uh, one, one weekend, my junior year of college, I played, well, I didn't really play, but I was on the Emory and Henry football team. And uh, I held the clipboard as well as any backup quarterback has ever held a clipboard. 
And one of the things, you may not know this about college football, is not all the players get to go to the away games. It costs too much money. Only the players who really play a lot get to go on the travel team to the away games. I was very proud of the fact my sophomore year I made the uh, away team or for a travel team for every away game. Uh, my junior year, uh, they brought in a freshman who was significantly more talented than me. Uh, I, I, I still thought I should have been brought along just for my uh, conversational uh, skill of, of help, help, you know, helping everybody have a good time. Uh, but they didn't see it that way. And so I was not on the travel team. I was kind of bummed about it. So one weekend out of the year, uh, the Emory and Henry College Wasps were traveling up to the Washington, D.C. area to play Catholic University. I don't know what Catholic's mascot was. I wasn't on the travel team. I didn't get to go. We'll call them the Saints. That's probably what they were. Uh, anyways, we were traveling. It was a big game. Both teams were in the top 10 nationally in Division Three, And because I didn't get to, all my friends were traveling to the game but I would not go. I said, no, I'm not going to humiliate myself by attending in the stands a game that I should be on the field for. So I chose to drive down to the great state of North Carolina uh, to a certain pharmacy school where there was a certain dark-headed, six-foot-tall lady attending classes who's now known as Rebecca Cantrell, my wife. I, I spent the weekend there, and then on Sunday afternoon, I drove back uh, when, I, when I drove back, I got back a few hours after my friends who had been driving back from D.C. got back that day. And instead of five people being at our house, uh, there were 35. And they came out to me, and 34 of them stood at a distance, and one of them walked up to me. And they had funny looks on their faces, and they said, Oh, Will, uh, there was an accident on the way home. Miss Margie didn't make it. Uh, Miss Margie was uh, riding in the, her pickup truck with her husband, uh, and an 18-wheeler clipped them. Uh, and at 70 miles an hour, they went tumbling down the interstate. Uh, he walked away with, with just a scratch. Uh, she was killed instantly, and her body horribly mutilated uh, from, from the wreck. And she, it happened in front of her husband and in front of her, her son and many of our friends. And here we were. Here we were in our grief. Here we were with a friend who's just lost one of the closest people to him in the world uh, in the most gruesome way you can imagine. And, and what were we going to do? We had no idea what to do. Uh, we, we had no idea what to say. And I bet a lot of the time over the next weeks and months, we said the wrong thing. But when I remember that time and I remember the messiness and the difficulty of it, I remember what we did do. We stayed together. And we cried a lot, and we hugged a lot, and we traveled to their home in Bluefield, and we traveled to hotels for different services, and we were just always together, and we were always taking care of one another and talking to one another, and we were always talking about God and how somehow God had to, to be in it. And we did a hundred thousand things wrong, but we did those two things right. And for many of us, that was a journey of grief, of months and years uh, for her son Trevor, it was a, a journey of decades. But he will tell you that walking through that journey with God and others ultimately has led to a path of blessing, not just curse. We need God and we need one another. I want you to know something about our Christian journey uh, in relationship with Jesus. Uh, we find it so clearly here in the Scriptures that we often overlook it. 
In the beginning of Jesus' ministry, most of that ministry took place in rural Galilee. In fact, in Luke's gospel, when we first hear Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, he's at the base of Mount Hermon, this beautiful sacred mountain. And then as he journeys towards Jerusalem, he journeys through gorgeous desert scapes. He journeys through agricultural areas of amber waves of grain. He journeys through the Sea of Galilee, uh, which looks like a great lake, just as gorgeous and as serene as anything you, you would see. And then he journeys to Jerusalem, a big, bustling, smelly, messy, dangerous city. And then from Jerusalem to the cross, from the cross to the grave, from the grave to glory. He journeyed from earthly, the earthly glory of Galilee to the struggle and pain of Jerusalem to heavenly glory. That's how he often journeys with us. Many of us uh, will tell you that we first met Jesus in earthly glory. Maybe we met Jesus at a Christian camp after spending a week outside with friends uh, around uh, watching a campfire and being mesmerized by the flames and hearing how Jesus wants a relationship with us, wants to forgive us and walk beside us. Many of us knows what it's like to make a commitment to Jesus in that glorious setting. Many of us feel the cl so have moments that we go back to where we felt close to Jesus in the Smoky Mountains, maybe on, on Mount Leconte. We, we feel close to Jesus when we're at the old family farm where uh, we can look out on nature and life just seems to move a little slower. We felt the closest to Jesus when we went to the ocean and we just looked at wave upon wave coming in and just the greatness, the vastness, and the majesty of the ocean. We felt the closest to Jesus uh, when we went out to the countryside where there aren't many lights and we looked and we didn't just see stars, we saw galaxies. That's meeting Jesus in Galilee. And that is real. It's as real as anything else in this life. And Jesus will meet you there. And Jesus loves to meet you there. But if you meet Jesus there, and you try to keep Jesus there, you'll go back to those places, but you won't find him in the same way. His presence will seem fainter. Because Jesus meets us in Galilee. But Jesus meets us in Galilee for the purpose of walking along with us to our Jerusalems. And Jesus wants not only to be our God in the beauty of nature, Jesus wants to be our God and our God in the messiness and the pain and the struggle of life because it's allowing him to walk there with us that then will ultimately lead us to find not just his earthly glory, but his heavenly glory. So I want to encourage you today when you walk through the struggle and the pain and the messiness, don't put Jesus to the side. Don't tell Jesus you'll meet him this summer at the beach. Let him walk with you to your Jerusalem because he walked to his and he knows how to journey through it. He knows what to do. So if you remember nothing else today, remember, remember this. In seasons of grief, there's a gift we can give. The greatest gift we can give in those seasons is to not turn away from one another, from our pain, or from our faith so that we can allow God to transform curse into blessing. I recently learned the, the story of Jerry. Jerry grew up in a home uh, with good parents, and he grew up with a father who really loved him. Now, like some fathers can do, uh, Jerry's father was probably a little too hard on him at times, but he sincerely cared for Jerry. 
as Jerry became a young adult, Jerry would talk to his father about his, his plans for the future, and he always wished his father would, would be a little more encouraging. And he always wondered why his father couldn't just celebrate Jerry's hard work and what he'd accomplished and why his father always seemed to have to add something else for, for Jerry to do or, or accomplish. And uh, one day, uh, when Jerry shared plans for the future that his father didn't quite agree with, his father said something that should not have been said. And after years of frustration and, and not knowing how to talk it out, Jerry responded by saying something you can't take back. And for uh, almost a year after that, they didn't really talk to each other. He talked to his mom. His mom talked to his dad, and she was the go-between but when they were around each other, it was, it was distant and, and it was awkward. And over time, they learned they didn't like the awkwardness. And they learned how to be cordial with each other. They learned how to do some things together. But they would have both told you it, it just wasn't like it used to be. It wasn't like it was before that, that conversation. And, and Jerry lived with this resentment towards his dad. Why can't you just appreciate me? Why, why, can't, why can't you just respect me? Why, why, why can't you just celebrate me? And then this, this funny thing happened as, as Jerry grew. He, he got married. He, he had kids. And this strange thing happened as he observed his father. His father always wanted to be at the house. And his father would get down on his hands and knees and play with his kids. And, and then as the kids grew, he just noticed his father was always encouraging always quick to say just how proud he was of his grandchildren. And Jerry got to see a, a beautiful side of his father. He also kept questioning, why couldn't you have been like that for me? I was in your home for 18 years. I'm glad you're doing this for my kids. Why couldn't it have been like that for me? And Jerry continued to wrestle with this. Nobody but his wife really knew how much he was wrestling with this. And he and his dad neither, neither quite knew how to have that conversation that just had to be had. The conversation that goes, I never should have done that. No, no, I never should have done that. I was way out of line. No, 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 I was way out of line. They just needed to have that, that conversation. And through the influence of his wife, Jerry began to get up the courage to have that conversation with his dad Unfortunately, before he got fully up that courage, found the way to do it, uh, a heart attack found his dad. They never got to, to have that conversation. And uh, he took his kids and he went to the grave and he went to the service and he stood there knowing there was something left undone that needed to be done. And he didn't know how to do it. And over uh, the next year or so, uh, that continued to, to eat away at him on the inside until once again through the influence of his wife he he decided to do something uh, he wrote his dad a letter he took the letter to the grave and he didn't just go on his own but he took his kids which were three kids at, at the time he took them with him and he didn't read them the letter there were, there were things in it he wasn't ready to talk to them about and they weren't ready to hear uh, but he just left the letter at the grave then he spent 15 minutes telling his kids what a great granddad they had. He spent 15 minutes just talking about everything in the world that was good about his father and how fortunate they were and how not everybody has a granddad like this. 
And then they, they walked away. Well, uh, on the way out, they uh, went through a rose garden. And his youngest son at the time was three. And his youngest son uh, was noticing how the roses smelled and, and all of that and, and the thorns. And then his, his son said, Dad, what's that smell? Well, they just fertilized. So Jerry said, that's, you know, that's fertilizer and that's, that's manure. And when we fertilize with manure, it smells bad, uh, but it makes beautiful plants. And his son said, Dad, what's manure? <laughs> so, of course a three-year-old would ask that. And Jerry thought about it, and he said, well, scientifically speaking, it's poop. That's, that, that, that's, what, that's what it is. Uh, but it has these nutrients that the plants need. And his three-year-old just cackled like only a three-year-old can cackle. And then as they're walking out, his three-year-old turned to Jerry and said, Dad, God makes beautiful things out of poop. And if you ask Jerry, he'd tell you that's the moment that he knew deep down in his soul. He knew that he knew that he knew. Yes, God does. That's exactly what God does. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks that you meet us in the glories of our Galilees and in the messiness and struggle of our Jerusalems, that you lead us uh, ultimately to your heavenly glory. In our seasons of struggle and grief, Grant that we might not go through them alone, but allow us to walk through them together with you and one another. When we want to turn away from you, when we don't want others to see us struggle, Lord, do not let our ego be the Lord of our lives, but pursue us and keep us in relationship with one another. When we don't know that we have the right words to say, when we're not sure what to do, Help us to walk together in the strength of your spirit that we might love one another as you have loved us. These things we pray in your name. And we all said together, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Concord United Methodist Church. This podcast is a ministry of Concord United and we would love to hear from you. To contact us, please send an email to podcasts at concordunited.org with sermons in the subject line. For more information about Concord United, including worship times, service opportunities, mission efforts, and classes, please visit our website at concordunited.org. We also invite you to download and enjoy our daily devotional podcasts presented by the pastors and members of Concord United. Finally, we would appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review of this podcast so that others can discover it and benefit from it.